have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Again, this morning's reading is going to be a little longer than we normally would read, but to get it, you really have to have the whole chapter. And so if you need to sit, I want you to feel uh, totally able to do that. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the most famous story from the book of Daniel. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might, not suf- might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the, kingdom plan, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps fought, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdoms, the prefects and the satraps of the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, son of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that, Lord, if you will not save us from the lion's den, that, Lord, you would save us in it. That you would give us the testimony of Daniel, that we could cry out with the voice of victory, O King, live forever. Lord, we know that we are prone to the entanglement of sin, and we know the futility of our strength to overcome it. But Lord, we also know that because of the person of Christ, you have not left us to our own devices, that he has come to overcome it on our behalf. And I pray, O Lord, that my people would not look within this morning, but they would look to the cross that is empty because of the Savior who was slain but then resurrected. Lord, this morning, as we think of the lion's den, let us think instead of the lion of Judah. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Christianity is no longer cool, is it? At best, at best, Christianity is seen as yet another option among the ancient spiritualities, all of which are equally valid, none of which are entirely necessary. At worst, Christianity is viewed as backwards, unsophisticated bigotry, something that, that refuses to progress forward and advance. Because after all, there is nothing more countercultural in an age that is allergic to commitment than a God who says he is supreme in authority, that all of his boundaries flow from his holy essence, and who demands from us entire total devotion. And so among my friends in the church, there are usually two responses. Some want to move the world backwards again. They want to return to the world of their childhood where Judeo-Christian ethics seem to be upheld in higher degree. And I think there's something honorable and beautiful about that. They long for the day in which prayer will return to schools and the legislation will bring high the name of Christ. And I, I pray that that happens. Some, some want to move the church forward rather than moving the word world backwards. Some want the church to become innovative in its method, but not just innovative in its method, innovative in its message to make it more suitable for the modern palate so that people won't find the gospel to be the stumbling block that they've found it to be. And so they innovate on social issues and innovate on theological issues and begin to compromise on things that the church has taught for more than 2,000 years. But there's a question that I think ought to be asked that I rarely hear asked. What if it's good for the church to no longer be cool? What if it's actually better for the people of God that we live in a culture of hostility? 
You see, if you go back and you study all of church history, and you actually go back and you can see this here in Daniel, you study the entirety of your Bible, what you will find about the people of God is that the people of God seem to flourish best when they're facing a culture of hostility that's against them. It's peacetime that we struggle with, not wartime. It's, it's prosperity that we struggle with, not famine. That in fact, if you go back and you look, most, most scholars, secular and spiritual alike, will tell you that the church began to be diluted and weakened in the 300s AD when Constantine made it the state religion of Rome. In fact, the apostles seem to agree with this. If you read Peter's first epistle, he's writing to a persecuted church. And Peter actually writes that the suffering of the church is like the refiner's fire, that like metal is purified in the fire. So are the church purified through the fires of persecution and hostility when it faces it. Paul uses and alludes to this very story when his letter to Timothy, and he says that the gospel actually went to the Gentiles because the Lord delivered him from the mouths of lions. That what I want you to see is if you are concerned or worried about living in a culture that is hostile, that what we see in Daniel is not the exception. It's normal for the people of God to live in exile. It's normal for the people of God to live in a world that can't understand them and refuses to understand them and to always assume the worst about us. That Daniel is, I think we typically picture uh, Daniel in the lion's den as this young, virile teenager or young man. Daniel is 80 or 90 years old by this point. In fact, Daniel has already outlived the regime of Babylon. Now, Persia has conquered Babylon, and he is under the rule of Persia. And I think what Daniel begins to show us here is how we can live a faithful life in a hostile culture. How we can live a faithful life in a hostile culture. That first, we must live honorably. We must live honorably. The brilliance of the Persian Empire, which is one of the most powerful and largest that's in all of human history, the brilliance of it was found in its administration. That they divided the whole empire into a series of provinces that were called satrapies. And they were governed by a collection, a plurality of satraps, governors, administrators that oversaw all of the work of the empire. And above those satraps were a cabinet that served just below the king that made sure that all the satraps were doing what they were supposed to do. And what we discover here in the book of Daniel is that Daniel, even though he was in exile, Daniel, even though he was a foreigner, because of the favor of God on his life, had actually ascended to this cabinet. And even among this cabinet, the elite of the elite, the cream of the crop, the ones that everybody had to answer to, among them, he distinguished himself even more. That he was uh, uh, so high that the king planned to put him over the whole kingdom. That he was going to be second in command. Does that remind you, does that give you echoes of the story of Joseph when God elevates him in Egypt to be second in command where he rescues his people? It should have those, those echoes that are there. But what's amazing is how the Bible describes what made Daniel so distinct. It says about him that there was an excellent spirit. Now we know that this is the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit was active and at work and alive certainly in the Old Testament. He worked and functioned in some different ways. But here he is coming upon the person of Daniel by the favor of God that he would set him apart. But it's written in an excellent spirit. And if we could see this in the original language it would stand out a bit more. It's actually written from a Babylonian or a Persian perspective. That it's written more generically. That what they would have understood someone with an excellent spirit to be is somebody that had a unique relationship to the gods. 
that they were somebody that had unique insight, unique ability to understand what God was doing and what God was saying, a unique wisdom. And if you read all of the book of Daniel, you'll see that you can understand why they had come and arrived at this perspective. And living in this polytheistic culture, they were very superstitious, they were very aware of the God, they were very theistic in their nature. And so they wanted people like Daniel that seemed to have this extraordinary connection. But what I think is interesting is they all recognize that something is different about Daniel, but they can't quite put their finger on it. That, in other words, they see the effects of his relationship with God, even though they don't fully recognize the cause of the relationship with God. They can see that he's distinguished. They can see that he's set apart. They can see that he's more excellent, more wise, even if they aren't able to recognize that it's because he has a unique relationship with a monotheistic, almighty Yahweh God. And I wonder if that's true of us. I wonder as you go out into the places that you work and the places that you go to school, when you go out to the ball field and you're sitting in the bleachers, that even if, even if people can't understand why you are the way that you are, that what they're able to see are at least the effects of your relationship with the Lord. Well, what we see it, true of Daniel is that they began to conspire against him. That what the politicians of his day wanted was a character assassination. And so they hire the CIA and the, and the PIs and all the dirt diggers to go out and to find some dirt on Daniel. That what they want are the Watergate tapes, right, from Daniel's life. They, they want to be able to create a political scandal that's going to stop this foreigner from getting all the jobs that all of them want to have. They're going to stop this foreigner from being able to ascend to this high place of authority in the Persian Empire and his influence with the king. But there's a problem with their plan. He has no skeletons. There are no Watergate tapes. It says that they, had, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. That They went and they placed his life under the microscope. They put him in the x-ray machine. They placed him under the utmost scrutiny. But Daniel's life, because he was faithful to his God, was able to withstand scrutiny. And so they came up with a new plan. What they recognized is that his only liability was in his unique worship of a single God. The scandal, the scandal of Daniel being in the position that he was in was living in a polytheistic culture. They would have thought worshiping a single God, being devoted to a single God, we see this in the Roman letters about the early church, was akin to atheism. It was crazy. And so what they recognized is that this is his political liability. That the weakness that Daniel has is his entire total devotion to Yahweh, to the Lord. But what they didn't realize, and the irony of the story, is the very thing that they perceive to be his weakness is actually the source of his strength. That they see his relationship with the Lord and they see weakness, but it was actually, and in reality, strength. And brothers and sisters, this is the case for the church in the 21st century. Everybody believes that you're a Christian because you're weak. <laughs> you are. But though you're weak, you are, by abiding in Christ, connected to a wellspring of strength. I think Daniel is giving us the means by which we can live winsomely in a hostile culture so that, so that we might portray the beauty and the glory of the gospel and win people over to show them that there is a better way. That what we see in Daniel, what we see in Daniel 
is that Daniel doesn't have to live by his own strength. He's connected to strength. What we see in Daniel is a man who, by following after the ways of God, is able to undergo scrutiny. What we see in Daniel, if you would have seen Daniel, Daniel would have looked like a Persian. Daniel would have looked like a Babylonian. He wouldn't have looked like some sideshow as he walked through the world, like saying, like a big banner with a cheesy Christian t-shirt saying, hey, I'm with Yahweh. He would have looked like one of them. But he didn't live like them. He didn't live with the same values they lived with. He didn't live with the same priorities that they lived with. He didn't live with the same devotions that they lived with. And brothers and sisters, if we want to impact our culture, our responsibility is not to label ourselves with t-shirts and tattoos and try to set ourselves apart as some sideshow. Our responsibility is to acclimate to the culture that we live in, acclimate to America. We would on the outside look like Americans, but, but in our values, in our priorities, in the way that we live, rather than looking and living like Americans, we look and live like Jesus would live. It's amazing that he undergoes that kind of scrutiny, would you? Would you be able to withstand the kind of scrutiny of your character that Daniel did? Much harm has been done to the church over the last number of generations, especially in the latest generation. Because of people who claim to know Jesus but don't act anything like Jesus. Because of of leaders in the church whose lives can't undergo the scrutiny. Would you be able to withstand the scrutiny of somebody searching for your Watergate tapes? Do you have skeletons that are hanging in the closet last year? Somebody asked me what the goal was. If I could summarize my life into a single goal, what would it be? And the best answer that I could come up with, it would be to die without secrets. To die without secrets. That when I pass on, I don't want my family to discover the dirt on me. When I pass on, I don't want my kids to discover my Bible and realize it was never read. I don't want my kids to have people that that come up at the end of my life or after my life and say uh, that I had done things that were unscrupulous or unethical or that I had harmed them in any way. I, I don't want secret affairs to be made public suddenly so that my church is humiliated. I want to die. I want to die without secrets. And if I have sin in my life, which I inevitably do, I want to drag it out in the open and deal with it. I want to drag it out in the open because, brothers and sisters, no person, no human being can flourish dragging skeletons everywhere they go. This morning, would you deal with yours? Would you deal with your Watergate tapes? Would you drag them in the open and confess them to the Lord and offer them to the Lord so that your honor can be restored and you can begin to live with a sense of honor, even in the midst of a hostile culture, to win them over to the ways of God? Live honorably and live deliberately. And live deliberately. The, the scheme that they come up with to entrap him is a scheme to ban the worship of any other god outside of Darius himself for a 30-day period. It wasn't forever. It was a 30-day fast. Now, you have to understand, they weren't really technically seeing Darius as a god most likely. They were seeing Darius as a mediator to the gods. In other words, Darius was the one, they were to go to Darius, and Darius was to go to all the other gods on their behalf. That you weren't allowed to pray unless you were aiming and directing those prayers toward the king who then was able to have this relationship with the, with the other gods on your behalf. And what they realize, and this is another testament to his character, isn't it? What they realize is that Daniel can't make it 30 days without the Lord. Daniel can't make it 30 days without talking to the Lord. Now let me ask you, how would you respond in this situation? Would you just say, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll just pray quietly within my heart for 30 days, and then I'll start praying again. I think that would be the normative response in the 21st century church. 
But I think what Daniel shows us is that, brothers and sisters, there is a time to comply, but there is a time to resist. When Daniel knew. When. He didn't wait. There was no hesitation. When Daniel knew, what did he do? He went to the second story of his house, right there in the open windows, aimed his heart toward Jerusalem, and got on his face before God so that everybody knew, so that everybody saw. What a great reminder that you can't legislate out the devotion of a heart to God. You can't do it. You can legislate out the legality of it. You can legislate out the respectability of it. But you can't legislate out the devotion to God. In fact, in fact, what Daniel shows us, if legislation comes that makes it illegal to worship and follow after the Lord, that may actually set the context for you to, do, to be able to show just how devoted to the Lord you actually are. But it's important that you recognize that this decision is not political, it's typical for Daniel. That Daniel, in other words, he's not going to the top of the stairs and going in front of this big window because he wants to make some new show and have some kind of, of, of defiant political statement. Do you know why Daniel goes upstairs to pray? Because Daniel goes upstairs to pray every day, three times a day. My favorite phrase uh, in all of Daniel uh, chapter 6 is probably, as he had done previously. This was typical behavior for Daniel. This is just what Daniel was. This is just who Daniel was. That every day, three times a day, he would go and he would open his heart, open his windows toward Jerusalem. That what he's doing here is he's fulfilling the instructions of Solomon when he dedicated the temple. You remember this? Solomon says, when you pray, get on your face and aim them at the temple because that is where the presence of the Lord dwells. That is the reminder that it is the Lord that has to hear your prayers and the Lord has to answer and so three times a day, Daniel went and he opened up his heart and he aimed it toward the Lord in Jerusalem. And when he did, he got down on his knees and he humbled himself before the Lord. And he recognized that it was in the Lord's presence before which every man will bow. And three times a day, he prayed. That's a word, if you saw it literally, it would be petition for help. That every day, three times a day, Daniel got on his face, he humbled himself, he aimed his heart at the Lord, and he begged God to help him. He begged God for wisdom, begged God for strength, begged God for insight, and then ultimately he gave God all his glory. He praised him and gave thanksgiving and acknowledged the Lord. That this isn't a political response to Daniel, for Daniel. This is a typical response for Daniel. That what we can see in Daniel's life is that Daniel's deliberate living over a long period of time had created in his life the right defaults and instincts so that he was ready for the day of crisis. That in other words, Daniel had been proactive in his life, not reactive. Daniel wasn't waiting until the bullets were flying and his life was in mess and his marriage was in an intensive care unit to then begin to know the Lord. Daniel walked with the, door, the Lord day in and day out so that when the moment of crisis came, he would be ready. It reminds me of a, a series I watched not that long ago. It's about, it follows a, a, mil, a marine platoon in the Pacific Theater back in World War II. And they're going, and, and the, the carnage, the human carnage, is unbelievable. And there are bullets flying, and grenades exploding, and planes flying overhead, and bodies dropping, and they're tripping and stumbling. But there's a commander, inevitably, every single time, off in the back, and he's yelling the same thing over and over and over. Remember your training. Remember your training. Now, if the Marines wait until they're on the battlefield to start getting some training, 
They're served up on a platter for the enemy. But brothers and sisters, how often is this the case when it comes to spiritual warfare? How often is this the case when it comes to living in a culture of hostility? That we wait until the bullets are flying, we wait until our lives are collapsing, we wait until we're in the deep tanglement of sin, and then, and then we're like, okay, Lord, I want to know you now. Okay, Lord, now I need your help. Now, I believe the Lord is kind. And I believe many of you probably have a story of how the Lord sustains you. But I wonder how many of us would have the story of living our lives in such a deliberate way so that our training has already trained our instincts and already trained our defaults so that when the bullets start flying, we have some idea of what to do. A few years ago, I was uh, with a group of men that was, I was discipling, and we spent a particular morning, an entire morning, talking about a rather complex ethical issue. And at the end of, of being able to talk about it, it was really a great discussion, and it was a hard conversation, and it was, the questions were really good, and they were really rich. And, and I could tell that we really had, had made some impact, and there was really some light bulbs that were going off for people. And I remember that one of the brothers spoke up, and he said, I just wish we would do this every week instead of reading the books. I wish we would do this every week instead of reading the books. And my response to him was, how will you know what to do every week? You see, the only reason that a person has insight and the only reason that a person has wisdom is, yes, the Lord gives it, but the Lord blesses the ordinary means of providence. And those years of reading and years of studying and years of, of thinking through these issues, then when the issue comes, when it presents itself, when the question comes, you have an answer for it. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't wait until the bullets are flying to get to know the Lord. This is the role of the spiritual disciplines. Daniel is putting this on full display. This is the role of an active prayer life. This is the role of, of daily Bible intake. This is the role of coming and being a part of the body of Christ week in and week out and hearing God's word preached. This is the role of fasting day in and day out. It's so that when the bullets start flying, you have lived your life in such a way that you are able to wisely navigate the crisis without falling apart. This is going to be increasingly necessary in a hostile world. Now live honorably and live deliberately and live freely, y'all. Live freely. They go and the conspirators approach the king, King Darius. King Darius is likely the same person, most people believe, as King Cyrus that we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah. This was the Persian Median Empire, and so it would not have been uncommon for them to have a Persian name and a Median name, and so it's likely that Darius is his Median name and Cyrus is his Persian name. But really, he's the tragic figure of the story, not Daniel. That They come in and they're able to deceive him because he has an enormous ego. And very often, the larger your ego is, the easier you are to manipulate and to deceive. For one, you believe that you're invincible. You believe that no consequence will come against you. But second of all, it means that you're really, really susceptible to flattery. That if someone can come in and just stroke your ego a little bit and make you feel good about life, and you already feel like you're invincible, that they can convince you to do almost anything. And that's exactly what we see with the conspirators right here. That the conspirators come in and they say, should anybody go to the Lord's apart from you? Should anybody be able to pray apart from you, Darius? Should we not be able to prove that everyone's devotion is belonging to you? And so Darius signs into, into law this injunction that for 30 days nobody can pray unless they come through him. And if they do, they're going to be fed to the lions. Now, 
We're told repeatedly here, we're told the same thing in the book of Esther. That it was a, it was a common practice in Persia media that when the king issued a decree that it was irrevocable. I think that gives us some insight, by the way, into how the Bible understands the will of God as being irrevocable. Given by the king, not, no, no one can change it, right? That the, that the Persian median king, when he invoked a decree, that decree was then irrevocable by even that king. And it was really meant as a protection against him. Because that meant that nobody, if they didn't like it, if it was an unpopular law, they wouldn't waste his time by coming and appealing to him, and they wouldn't attempt an assassination of him. Because even if he's dead, the law is still irrevocable. And so it was seen as a protection for him. But when he realizes that in the crosshairs of this law is his most trusted advisor, apparently even one of his closest friends, he is undone by it. It says that he goes and... He begins to work all night. He labored till the sun went down to rescue. He was much distressed. He had his, set his mind to deliver Daniel. He wanted to save Daniel. But what we see with the king is that even though he wanted to save Daniel, even though he was in anguish, he was totally unable to do so. And it's a great picture, man, a picture that reminds us that we must realize the entanglement of sin. This is the freest, most autonomous man in all of the earth at the time. There, there was no man that held any higher authority than the king of Persia. He was the most powerful man of the most powerful army. And even though he was free to do what he wanted and that no one could come up against him, because of his own sin, he put himself into bondage. Because of his own sin, he constructed for himself a, a prison from, from which he could, he could not, not escape. escape. This, this is, is what, what sin does. does. This, this is, is how sin entangles. entangles. Nobody, Nobody intends on becoming an addict. You realize that? How does a person become an addict? They live arrogantly. They believe, they believe that they are above the consequences. They believe that they can handle it. They believe they are entitled to a little fun. They believe that they are entitled to letting themselves down. And what happens over enough time is their arrogance leads to their fall, and they end up themselves in an addiction that they can't break free of, just like Darius. This, this is a good, good question to think of. How, how many divorces, divorces start with lust? How, how many divorces, divorces start with lust? You, you don't marry because you have similar values. You, you don't marry because you have a similar pursuit of the Lord. You don't marry because you find yourselves compatible. You marry simply because you want to satisfy the lusts of your flesh. And then, and then you find yourself falling apart and your life falling apart. And you live with those consequences forever. The Lord can show so much grace and so much kindness. But ask any divorced person and they will tell you. They will tell you of the consequences. It's the entanglement of sin, isn't it? The same is true with all the with so many financial crises, right? How do you end up in financial crisis? It, it can be providential circumstances. It can be health related. It can be those things. But very often, what is it? It's impulse. I couldn't overcome. I wasn't self-controlled. I, I was more materialistic than I should have been. I was greedy. I, it was too easy to swipe the card, and it felt too good. And then over time, over time, the interest compounds, and the bills keep coming in, and you feel like you're in a prison, right? It's the entanglement. Sin dangles the carrot in front of you, and then it draws you into a maze that you can't seem to escape. But he doesn't just show us the entanglement of sin. He shows us that we have to recognize the helplessness of self-rescue. All night long, 
all night long he couldn't sleep. It says that there was a law in Persia that basically said if it couldn't be overturned by sundown, then it couldn't be overturned. And so it says there, he's much distressed, set his mind to deliver. And he labored all the way till the sun went down to rescue him. But it was to no avail. He was not able to do it. That all he got for trying to deliver himself from his entanglement of sin was exhaustion. Many of you, you're trying to overthrow your addictions and you're trying to fix all your life and straighten it all back out. You're, you're trying to, to put all the pieces. You're trying to look within and find the willpower and the, and the sense of morality that you need. You're, you're trying to reorganize and, and reset your life. And the only thing that you have to set for, see for it is a sleepless night and pure, flat-out exhaustion because you're hopeless. And that's why the Scriptures are inviting us to look at Daniel, who is the freest person in this story? The freest person in this story is the man that's been thrown to be eaten by the lions. Why is he free? Because though he's in the lion's den, he is not there alone. That it is better to be in the lion's den with the Lord than it is to be the ruler on high without him. Brothers and sisters, what I want for you what I want for our teenagers, what I want for my children, what I want for my family is that you would live as men and women of freedom in an age filled with prisons. Live honorably. Live, live honorably. Live deliberately. Live freely. And live victoriously. Live victoriously. The king, he is distraught. He doesn't know what to do. But he throws... Daniel into the lion's den because he is bound by his own decisions. He is bound by his own laws. And so he, he casts him in there. And it's hard to believe that this is anything like what Daniel had pictured for his life. N nobody, when they're a teenager or a child or a young man, dreams of being fed to lions. And it's just like nobody dreams of losing friendships and opportunities because of their devotion to the Lord. Nobody dreams of living in a hostile culture. Nobody, we can even take this to the providential sufferings. No, nobody dreams of having MS or burying their child young so that all of their dreams look differently in the future than the way that they had planned them. But what Daniel shows us is that we wouldn't even know his name. Would you know his name if he had not been thrown in the lion's den? We wouldn't even know his name were it not for the sufferings. That God very often does not deliver us the way that we want for him to deliver us. He delivers us in an even more profound and miraculous way. That most often God doesn't deliver us from the lion's den. God delivers us in the lion's den. When you stop to think about it, you stop to think about all the sufferings that you encounter. You stop, stop to think about all the hardships. You, know, you, think, you stop to think about all the bad decisions that you've made that get you there. Isn't it a comfort to know? that the Lord can be in all of those things, that the Lord can work through all of those things, that the Lord's will for your life is not to make you as comfortable as possible. The Lord's will for your life is to not make you as safe as possible. The Lord's will for your life is to reveal in you a deeper contentment, satisfaction, and joy in Christ so that you can know that everything else is bankrupt. And that's why the Lord more often uses lion dens than beach resorts to sanctify his church. Daniel goes into the lion's den. He's in the lion's den, and King Darius hasn't slept a wink all night. It says that he is in anguish when he, when he comes out there, and he, and he cries out, 
Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? A.K.A., has your God been able to do for you what I can't? Has your God, the one to whom you pray, been able to deliver you in a way that me, the one that everybody else is praying to, can't deliver you? And I love Daniel's response. Daniel says, oh, king, live forever. Oh, king, live forever. It is a word of joy. It is a word of triumph. It is a word of contentment. It is a word of respect. He declares out in victory, saying, Oh, king, here I am. My Lord has delivered me yet again. Isn't that beautiful? And what it says, it says that my God sent his angel. Again, I think this is Jesus. I think that what we're seeing throughout the book of Daniel is a pre-incarnate visitation of the second person of the Trinity who comes and joins us in the pit of fire, who comes and joins us in the pit of lions that we might be able to be sustained yet another day. And what we see, this don't miss this, don't miss this, is that God was just as present with Daniel in the lion's den as he had been in the prayer closet. In fact, in fact, it is proof when God is with him in the lion's den that God was with him in the prayer closet. How many times do you think? Three times a day, every day, as he had always done, it says, he went and he prayed. Do you think every single one of those prayers, he just was filled with tears and overwhelmed with emotion and the nearness of the presence of the Lord? Absolutely not. How many times do you think Daniel went and felt as though he was just talking to the ceiling? How many times do you pray and just feel like you're talking to the ceiling? Feels like that a lot, doesn't it? That day in, day out, in the mundane parts of life, you go in and you pray and you, 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 you try to focus yourself and concentrate yourself and you, you aim your heart to the Lord and you humble yourself before the Lord and you call out for the Lord's help and you, you think and praise the Lord, but you leave during the day and you wonder, am I crazy? <laughs> When do you know that God was with you in the prayer closet? When you see him stand with you in the lion's den. Brothers and sisters, it is when your prayers are answered that your faith is verified. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons that we work really hard here at Iron City to bring the generations together. Because you 20-somethings need the 60, 70, and 80-somethings because they've had their prayers answered. They know what it's like to watch the Lord intervene. And you need the pile of rocks to testify to you of the truth and veracity of your faith. Oh, brothers and sisters, keep praying. Keep praying because God uses lion dens more than beach resorts. It's important to recognize that the main purpose, I think, of the book of Daniel is to prepare the people of God for the messianic kingdom. We're going to talk more about this next week in Daniel chapter 7. I know y'all wouldn't let me off the hook on that one. So we're going to Daniel chapter 7 next week. It's going to be a challenging one. But a big part of the book of Daniel is to prepare us for the messianic kingdom. And a big part of the message of Daniel is until the messianic kingdom is fully established, until Jesus, the Messiah, returns for his church, it's going to look a lot like living in exile. We will know who he is. We will know the Messiah. But until he comes, it's going to be some hard days for us. So what hope do we have? <laughs> Y'all, this is it. This is it. What hope do we have? 
the hope that we have is that our lion has come and he is greater than all of the other lions. The hope that we have is that he has already proven himself victorious and he's going to come for his charge triumphant. You see, there is a greater Daniel coming. It says in verse uh, verse. 24, the king commanded those men, that, that's the conspirators, commanded those who had maliciously accused. There is a play on words here that I wish the modern translators would have gotten. Do you know what it means? If you were to read this in Hebrew, literally what it would say is eaten to pieces. Do you see it? Eaten to pieces that the conspirators had intended to throw Daniel to the lions so that they would be so that he would be eaten to pieces they had slandered him they had assassinated his character they had eaten him to pieces but what happens to that serpent what happens to that snake it gets crushed by the head by the foot of the seed of the woman the ones who had maliciously Eaten to pieces, Daniel, were brought and cast into the den of lions that they had devised. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and what? Broke all their bones in pieces. That which was meant to destroy Daniel ultimately destroyed those who had come to destroy him. Oh, there's a greater Daniel. There's another one. There's another one against whom his friends and fellow citizens conspired. There's another one whose faith, un, whose faithfulness underwent the scrutiny of the age and came out unblemished. There's another one who was at the hands of a deliverer, of a politician who wanted to save him, but ultimately washed him his hands of the whole shebang. There is another one who was fed to the lions, nailed to a tree. There is another one that when the disciples came to find him, the stone had been rolled away, the one that had been stoned, and he came out declaring, oh king, live forever. But the lion of Judah had slain the lions of the age, and brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, that's our lion. You see, Christianity, it may not be cool, but don't miss that it sure is victorious. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.